Genesis chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat, so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seers of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abram and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. When the men, I'm going on to 18, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abram walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Well, in our evening sermon series, we're going through looking at various uh, incidents in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where God behaves in a way that is unexpected, where God behaves in a way that is not the way that perhaps we think God should behave. And in that passage that Mike read for us a few moments ago, Uh, He went on for a few verses, building his part up, as Mike always does. Um, We find this incident where Abraham meets these three visitors, and one of them is God. Now, that's one of the most profound images of God. It occurs again and again, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And what is this most profound image of God is not found in a temple, and it's not found in a church building. It doesn't come from the words of a prayer. It doesn't come from the rituals of a priest. It doesn't come from a particular religion, whether that's the Jewish faith or what became the Christian faith. But what happens is that God makes himself known at a table. 
God makes himself known in a meal. And again and again, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God reveals himself in a meal. If you think about the life of Jesus, again and again and again, we read about Jesus eating meals. Jesus spending time with people that nice, good, religious people weren't supposed to spend time with. Jesus going to the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus eating with the tax collectors and so-called sinners. Jesus again and again eating meals. He ate a lot of meals. Well, he probably ate the same number of meals as you and I eat because he was fully human. But what's striking is that again and again, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't just record the miracles, don't just record the sort of holy spiritual stuff, but they record his meals. So-and-so ate with Jesus. Jesus ate with so-and-so. One theologian even wrote that Jesus was killed because of the way he ate, or at least because who he ate with. And here in the Old Testament, we have this amazing picture of God eating with one of the great fathers of the faith, Abraham. And of all the ways that God reveals himself again and again and again, God reveals himself in a meal around a table. This became a sort of iconic picture. Um, this is a, a famous, uh, what's called an icon. Uh, it's in Eastern art. And this is uh, by a guy called Rublev who is uh, the artist, and he painted this. And uh, this is a picture of Abraham's three guests. And uh, this is a picture uh, from hundreds of years ago of this incident being depicted. And at the same time, it then became uh, sort of a symbol also for the Trinity. And if you see, they're, they're, they're sort of looking at each other all the time. And the thing about an icon, Western art goes to a point, but Eastern art draws you in. And the idea is that if you look at that, you see that the shape of the table, what does it remind you of? It reminds you of a wine glass. And on the table is a wine glass. So what we're seeing depicted here is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, that's the guy at the back with the red bit and the blue bit. Um, the, the blue bit is divinity. Uh, on his right is, is Jesus, and on their left is the Holy Spirit. And that has helped people for centuries, again and again, to, to picture the Trinity. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if this evening we, we recreated that here on the stage? So imagine if we had, I don't know, a table, and we had three chairs. So imagine if we had a table um, <laughs> that just by magic appeared, um, and we were able to replicate what that picture looked like. So we've got a table, and we've got three places set. Um, round of applause for my lovely assistants. Get paid extra if you bring three chairs. <laughs> Two, one. Thanks, Jamie. Hang a blinder. 
So I'm going to ask Libby and Paul if they'd like to join me up here um, to recreate this. So I don't know who wants to be Jesus and who wants to be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay. And God promises... Oh, that's, it's all right, it's empty. It's okay. And God meets us around a table. So imagine that there was a really nice meal that was going to be served. And imagine that we got the chance to eat. So what we've got here is, is roast beef and some potatoes and some carrots and some broccoli and some very cheap water. <laughs> so tuck in. Yeah, it's been warmed up and everything. It's been cooked fresh by Ailey. She's cooked it specially. Yeah, and there's some really nice gravy. Do you want some gravy? Do you want some gravy? Okay. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Okay. I'll have mine later because I've got to talk. So I'll put the gravy on. That's okay. Look, smells fantastic. Can you get the smell on the front row? It's really good. Well, this is Edinburgh. We feed anybody when you, you know, we're hospitable like that. We don't say you'll have had your tea. Um, so this is what it's like when Abraham entertains these three visitors. Abraham had been uprooted from his home. He'd been called to leave home in his old age. And he'd been promised a child by God in his old age. He'd actually at one point given his wife away in order to save his own skin and pretended that she was his sister, not his wife. And this is very strange stuff. This is Abraham, who's the great father of the Jewish faith, one of the great fathers of Christianity. And here he is pretending that his wife is his sister. He'd then seen God give serious diseases to help save him. There'd been some ethnic cleansing suggested as a means of fulfilling God's promises. And he'd been told that his allegiance to God was going to be demonstrated by genital mutilation. I mean, I don't know about you, but... That would not be a religion if I was starting with a blank sheet of paper. That would not be what I would have dreamt up. And I'm very glad that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of God's covenant. And that's where we find Abraham. This isn't predictable, safe, religious stuff. This is very different. This is very odd. This is very unusual. And you two are really liking that food, aren't you? You're just really going for it. Okay. So we have Abraham, the ultimate host. Abraham has lived at this place called Mamre uh, for about 20 years, since he'd separated from his nephew Lot. And we're told about these great trees of Mamre, and it conjures up this uh, picture of an oasis in the wilderness. And uh, in the heat of the day, we're told, these three visitors arrive at midday. And in Middle Eastern culture, in those days, still is today, hospitality is really important. And we're told that Abraham hurried, he ran. That was unheard of for an old person to run. It's pretty unheard of for me to run. Uh, but Abraham runs. Old people in Middle Eastern hot countries don't run. But Abraham ran to where these visitors were. And he bowed down to them. That's significant. Maybe he even at this moment suspected who it was that he was entertaining. 
He bows down and he says to them, well, I want to offer you a, he actually says, a little water and rest. Now again, in those days, you didn't travel for holidays. You, you traveled basically for two or three reasons. You traveled for trade, or you traveled because you were a refugee and your life was in danger. And to be offered hospitality, to be offered water and rest, could literally be life-saving. Because you didn't know when the next oasis was going to be. So people looked after each other and welcomed each other. So to be offered a little water and rest, basically Abraham was saying, I will give you life-saving provisions. Water and food and shade could save your life. But in fact, Abraham goes even further than that. We're told that he kills the best calf. He goes and asks his wife, Sarah, to bake 48 kilograms of bread. That's a lot of bread for three people. 48 kilograms of bread. And what we're seeing here is hospitality on a royal scale. There are curds and milk and a fatted calf. You've got roast beef and potatoes and broccoli and carrots, and it smells really good. It's really good. I'm really pleased for you. Um, I'm not as... Anyway. Um, but it is hospitality on a royal scale. This is a banquet, not a picnic. And then one of the visitors asks a question. He says, where's your wife Sarah? Not Sarai, which was her name originally, but where is your wife Sarah? And Sarah was the name that God had given her. And actually only three people knew that her name was now Sarah. One was Sarah, one was Abraham, and the other was God. So what's happening is that Abraham is being given a clue as to who he is hosting. Because the person that he's hosting says, where's your wife, Sarah? Not Sarai, but Sarah. And suddenly Abraham realizes who it is he's got at the table. Abraham, she's there at the tent. And God says, I will surely return next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah laughs because she can't believe it. God says, you laughed. She says, rather unwisely, I didn't laugh. And God says, no, you did laugh. I heard you laugh. But what we see here in something that maybe you haven't really thought about in the same way is that right at the heart of who God is, is this idea of hospitality. That hospitality is key to who God is. If you think about it, God himself, in this incident, as well as others, becomes the recipient of hospitality. And that's quite a humbling thing to do. We all love, perhaps, to give hospitality, to invite people to come out for a meal or to our house, maybe. But actually, to be the recipient of hospitality, well, that's a bit different. What we see is God himself becoming a tired, hungry, hot, thirsty traveler. God himself becoming, if you like, a would-be refugee. Something that Jesus himself would become. 
a spare room in an inn in Bethlehem so he could be born, a drink from a Samaritan woman at a well, his feet being anointed by perfume from a woman no religious person would spend time with, even a tomb being borrowed so that he could be buried. Hospitality, you see, is a privilege, not a burden. One writer says this, our theology is in fact revealed in our hospitality. Our theology is revealed in our hospitality. When we offer hospitality, and who we offer that hospitality to, actually reveals who we think God is. The one who offers the ultimate in hospitality and welcome offers to eat with us around a table, in revelation at a wedding feast in the new creation. That's an amazing picture of heaven, the best wedding reception, the best Kaylee, the best party that we will ever go to, even those of us who hate parties. That will be the best meal that we've ever been to. And that's the picture that we have of eternity and time, heaven and earth meeting, of a new creation. And the picture that we have is of a banquet, is of a meal. Jesus says, if you invite me into your life, I will come and eat with you, and you eat with me. You see, when you eat with people, you're entering into a relationship with them. When you eat with people, you're saying, they're okay. When you eat with people, you are saying they're fine. Eating with people is very significant. Some years ago at this church, we had some difficulties on the staff team. And there were a couple of members of staff who, for a while, we fell out of relationship with. And what was striking for me was that they said that they couldn't eat with us in the same way that they couldn't pray with us. In their mind's eye, praying together was equal with eating together. And actually, it's a really good tip that if you're angry with somebody, I would suggest that you invite them for a meal. Because that's the beginning of that relationship being restored. It's, it's really, really hard to stay angry with somebody if you're sitting across a table from them. You can flick peas, <laughs> but actually it's really hard to stay angry with somebody if you're eating with them. So we have Abraham, the ultimate host. And then the second half of that story that Mike didn't get on to read was something, again, that's very unusual. The two visitors leave. See ya. And they wander away. But Abraham stays with one of them. And a dialogue begins. We, we heard a hint of it at the start of that passage, at the end of the passage that Mike was reading, where, as it were, God speaks out loud. And he says, shall I tell my servant Abraham what I'm about to do? After all, Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation. He's going to bless uh, everybody. Everyone's going to be blessed through him. So maybe I will tell Abraham what I'm about to do. 
And what God is about to do is to bring judgment on two cities, one called Sodom and one called Gomorrah. They become sort of shorthand for sin and wickedness. But the paradox is that they're not necessarily known in the Bible for the sin that became associated with them. Because as the story unfolds, the sin that they are guilty of in in chapter 19 of Genesis is gang rape and violence and inhospitality. And in one of the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 16, they're reprimanded for being slow to help the poor and being arrogant and proud. That's why God brings judgment on them. It isn't for the same sex stuff that down the centuries they've been associated with. It's actually for being arrogant and proud and being slow to help the poor. God says in Genesis 19 verse 20 that he's heard the outcry. And that word outcry is a specific word that means a cry of pain or the cry for help of those being oppressed or violated. And what happens is a very strange story. Again, when two of these three travelers, two angels or two messengers arrive in Sodom, a mob of men wants to gang rape them. This is over 18s only territory. Sodom was a no-go area for angels. That's how bad it was. And it's so bad that God says, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to wipe Sodom and I'm going to wipe Gomorrah off the face of the earth. And he tells Abraham what he's going to do. There's only one problem for Abraham. His nephew Lot, that he'd fallen out with 20 years before, lives in that city of Sodom. And so Abraham starts a conversation with God. And six times he asks God. He says, God, what if there are 50 righteous people living in that city? Will you spare it? God says, maybe. And then he says, what about 45? And then 40? And then 30? And then 20? And then 10? And when they get down to 10, God stops the conversation. But what we see are not concessions from God being like a sort of begrudging car salesman. Okay, I'll give you 45. Okay, I'll give you 40. Okay, I'll give you 25. I'll give you 30. I'll give you 10. What is happening here is that Abraham is actually being taught a very, very deep lesson about God himself and prayer. And that prayer is learning to wrestle with God especially when we see things happening that we don't understand or want. And that part of a relationship with God is learning to come to terms with the fact that God is bigger than we are. That God is stranger than we are. That God is more mysterious than we will ever know. And that we might have doctrines about God, and those are important. We might have beliefs about God, and those are important. But that God himself will always be bigger than our doctrines. And God himself will always be bigger than our creeds. 
And God himself will always be bigger than our understanding of who God is because that's what makes him God and us not God. And that's good news for everybody. God is bigger than we will ever understand. And this incident between Abraham and God is Abraham beginning to understand that God is more mysterious and bigger and greater than he will ever grasp. And yet, and yet, God desires a relationship with you and with me. That the God who made the entire cosmos, the God who made the entire universe, the God who spoke and the earth came into being, the God who reduces himself to sitting at a table is the God who also invites you and I to sit round a table with him. And that we aren't called to follow God in a way of, of blind obedience or empty religion or ritual or rules, but that what you and I are called into is a relationship. Because time and time again, he sits down with his people and invites us to a meal. And one day will for eternity itself. And Abraham, and we'll see this in greater detail next week, begins to learn that the right at the heart of a relationship with God is this wrestling with God and understanding that God knows more than we will ever know and God knows better than we will ever know. One writer, Susie King, said recently this, Prayer is this great and glorious mystery that the Lord of majesty who created all would bend his ear to hear my heart. God is never too busy to hear from his children. There is nothing that might seem so big to you that you can think is too small for God. I learned this lesson a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, you may remember if you were in church, we had to uh, announce the very sad news that a former church member had died that weekend. And it was a, a sort of roller coaster weekend for me, roller coaster day, because um, that day that we announced that particular Sunday uh, was also uh, the day before Josh, who looks after our student work and our alpha work here, uh, was getting married to Laura, who, who's playing the keyboards tonight. You following? Keep up. We'll get there in the end. Anyway, it was sort of a mixture of incredible sadness at having to come to begin to come to terms with this news, uh, but also huge celebration for, for Laura and for Josh, because Josh had found somebody daft enough uh, to put up with him. Steady. <laughs> and I had to, after the two morning services, I had to drive up to Perthshire into the middle of nowhere uh, where Josh and Laura decided to get married. It was a beautiful place. You couldn't see any of it because of the mist, but it was stunning eventually. Um, and I had to drive up to do the wedding rehearsal the, night, the day before to make sure that they knew their words and who stood where and et cetera, et cetera. I then had to drive back down and start the evening service off, the seven o'clock service. Now, in wedding rehearsals, 
things don't always go smoothly. And, and this one took a little bit of time, didn't it, Josh and Laura, to get going. So we were a bit late when we started, and we were even later when we finished. So I set off from deepest, darkest Perthshire, knowing that it was a touch-and-go thing whether I was going to get back here for the start of the 7 o'clock service. And I was driving into Edinburgh, keeping the speed limits. I really was. And, because there were cameras. And um, I, I got to about Dean Bridge, and I knew that it was, it was literally down to the, 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 the millisecond. And I said to God, God, you know how I feel about praying for parking spaces. It is one of my noirs, one of my hates when, when Christians say, and God was so good to me that he gave me a car parking space. I'm thinking, he's got Syria to look after. He's got the Rohingya people in Myanmar to look after. He's got a tornado and a hurricane. And you're asking for a car parking space. Please keep some sense of perspective. And this inner dialogue was going on inside my head as I was driving across Dean Bridge. And I'm going to, I'm saying, God, you know I don't normally do this. And I, I, I don't hold it against you if you don't. But I could really do with a car parking space just, without, just outside church. I could really, really do with, could you put Syria on hold? And could you put the Rohingya, I didn't say that. Um, but in the greater scheme of things, could you please give me a car parking space? And I drove along York Place. And I'm not kidding you, the only space that was there was the first one just outside number 40, just before um, the Pelican Crossing line start. It was the only one that was left, and it was the only one where you could park. And I parked in that space, and I walked into church and walked onto the stage and made the announcement. And God taught me something that he is bigger than I am. And God knows more than I do. And when I pray next time for a car parking space, he won't give me a car parking space. Because God always delights in being bigger than we are and being more mysterious than we are. But it taught me again, 40 years on of being a Christian, that God hears our hearts. <coughs> And that there's nothing that is too small, which may seem too big for us to tell God about. So two questions as we finish. Firstly, that profound question, how does your hospitality reveal your theology? What does that mean? Well, what does your table, if you have a table in your house or your student flat, what does your table say about what you believe about God? Who gets to sit at your table? Is it just people like you? Are you willing to extend a welcome to the stranger, to the refugee, even to someone who's in exile? As you think about the people round your table, would your hospitality Reveal what you believe about God. Think about it another way, maybe. If it's school, who do you spend time with? Are you always spending time with the cool kids? 
Or are you willing to go and find somebody that actually everybody else doesn't like? And are you willing to risk being written off by other people in your class, by other people at your school? If you've just started university, are you willing perhaps not just to gravitate towards Christians? Please don't just gravitate towards Christians. But spend time with the sort of people that Jesus would spend time with. The people that nice religious good people don't spend time with. Do meet Christians as well, but don't spend all your time with Christians. What does your hospitality reveal about what you believe about God? And secondly, are you allowing God to change your heart as you pray? To sense God sharing his heart with you as you share with him what matters to you. And are you willing to trust that God knows best? Are you willing to trust that God knows better than you do in that situation, with that person, in that relationship? With that particular thing that God is asking you to do or say or stop, and at the moment you don't know why God is asking you to do that. Are you willing to trust him? And are you willing to let God change your heart, even though you think that prayer is all about you changing God's mind? That's what Abraham thought. He thought prayer was about him changing God's mind. But by the end of the story, we actually see that what Abraham is beginning to learn is that prayer is about God changing Abraham's heart. And that is far more important and far more profound than anything that Abraham might be praying to God.